Kia ora koutou, tēnā koutou, tuatahi, uh, e mihi ana ki nemana whenua o tēnei rohi, uh, tuarua e mihi ana ki te whari e tūnei, uh, mina kaimahi o te pātakatoi, uh, e mihi ana ki nga kai kōrero o, o tēnei wānanga, ko Josh, ko Bromwyn, ko Eugene, kia ora, yeah. and e mihi ana ki nga koutou katoa, ko taimai nei ki tēnei kōrero. Uh, ko ai tēnei, uh, no ai airani o ku tipuna uh, i pakea hau, i tipakea hau ki konei ki pōneke uh, i mahi ana hau ki nga taonga Sound and Vision ko Caitlin Lynch toko ingoa Nō no reira, tēnā koutou, no mai um, Welcome, it's really lovely to have you all here and um, I'm so excited for this discussion we're about to have with Josh, Bronwyn and Eugene um, yeah, we've been emailing in advance and things have gotten pretty uh, deep and specific and political, so it looks like it's going to be fun. Um, to start with, I will just I'll read the, um, the, the bios that we have for our speakers today um, to, to set us some context, and then we're going to talk about uh, how these artists use reuse um, and, and sampling and remix uh, in their works and then move into the implications of copyright law around that and, and thinking about the, the nature of reuse and the kind of ethical implications of reuse. Coming in from Kentucky, kia ora, Josh, it's awesome to have you here and your cat Uno Diamond, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, yeah. So Josh is the, um, the, the spark of this talk today um, from uh, his incredible works, Triple Feature, upstairs, um, which if you haven't seen them yet, go see them after we have this talk. Um, Josh creates video and photographic works that explore the power of context and the authorship of memory, oftentimes utilising seminal moments in pop culture and news media creating confrontations that illuminate individual encounter with communal experience. Josh's work evaluates the perception of realness, which can be ultimately rooted in both the fantastic as much as the pragmatic. Um, and we're gonna yeah, get into that discussion about uh, the, the communal. Um, later on we talk about uh, what, what it means to, to bring and, and reuse pop culture. Uh, and we are also joined uh, luckily, gladly, happily, by two local artists from Franz Whanganui We have Dr. Bronwyn Holloway-Smith, who is an artist, author, and the Director of Public Art Heritage Aotearoa New Zealand at Toirau Farangi, Massey University College of Creative Arts. And then we're also joined by Eugene Hansen, kia ora. Uh, Eugene's an artist, occasional author, and curator who's produced collaborative multimedia art projects often compromised of installation, ready-made sculpture, video and sound works. Eugene's work proposes that the world we inhabit might best be described as a politicised mediascape where deployed instances of contemporary popular culture reflect the ongoing process of colonisation. But why am I here? Um, I saw a film in, in this theatre a couple of years ago called Terra Nullius, which remixed this, you know, 175 uh, bits of uh, Australian pop cultural media uh, and I was really fascinated by what that did um, and the, the antagonism of, of copyright law in that work 
Um, and then more recently in my work at Ngātaunga Sound and Vision, I've become interested in the other ethical frameworks um, which might guide and shape uh, reuse um, that aren't copyright. So there's kind of another, another element to that conversation too. Yeah, so maybe Josh, if we could start off with you. We've obviously got your work's triple feature upstairs, but I'm wondering if you can talk about um, kind of your creative practice more generally and, and kind of how you, why you've been drawn to, to reuse. So, yeah, it, it's gone for, it's a habit, um, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, I started this body of work in the early 2000s, and it's just like I was thinking about it because we've gone back and forth over email. Um, and out of all the work, there's every time there's like some creative output, whether it's an experiment or whatever, I always number it in the studio. Um, and I'm into like 320, 330. Um, and I was thinking about there's like one and a half works that haven't been based upon somebody else's work. Um, you know, and, and part of that for me, it's I come out uh, or I come into this from a traditional photography background. Um, I really wanted to be Robert Frank um, or Walker Evans, but I realized I had nothing to add to that. And there was so much material out there um, that I just picked it up and started working with it. Um, and then I wind up here today. Um, so it's, you know, it's just, it's an ongoing thing for me. I don't know what it would mean to actually make something that was entirely of my own creation at this point in my practice. I don't know that I know how to do it any longer, actually. How about you, too? Um, I suppose for me, I would say I came to working with um, sampling through, actually through a, a practice of sculpture where I was um, largely working with ready-made objects and I wanted to start including film um, aspects into my installations started by including whole whole films and then um, I just happened to be working with someone who um, convinced me to buy a computer and start editing video clips myself and at the same time as that I was um, in my early 20s and became kind of involved with club culture and so notions to do with sampling and um, and really the video in clubs was so bad and I ended up saying I could do better than that and my girlfriend went, well, why don't you then? So I started DJing and working with sampled videos that way. Kia <coughs> ora. Um, uh, yeah, for me, I, I was wondering sort of what point in time to pull out to talk mm. about. Um, but yeah, I think it started um, sort of 20 years ago when I was in art school and I was looking at and engaging with internet culture as it was emerging in the early 2000s and wanting to respond to that and got drawn to this quote from Paul Virilio that says, what was once a window is now a screen and so sort of started drawing what I was seeing basically through that, through that window that is a, a screen. Um, and that brought up issues of copyright for me and, um, you yeah, sort of warned off or, you know, told that it wasn't going to be an issue in the creative arts um, when I raised concerns about it and that um, often when someone tells me not to worry about something, that makes me sort of 
go in the opposite direction and and actually dive further into what is that about. So um, that that eventually led me to uh, co-found a um, advocacy group for artists uh, called the Creative Freedom Foundation um, with Matthew Holloway, and. Um, we got quite involved in the political lobbying uh, aspect of copyright law in Aotearoa. There was a particular piece of legislation in, what was it, 2008, um, Section 92A, uh, <laughs> which probably means nothing to anybody now, but at the time it was like, these letters and numbers make sense. Um, and, yeah, that, that sort of catapulted me in at the deep end of... Um, the legal and political discussions around copyright and the various parties that are jostling for power in that space in the New Zealand context, but also kind of reaching from overseas as well. So um, that's sort of influencing my practice nowadays and I've actually sort of going, going back to drawing now, which is, uh, yeah, <laughs> feels like an interesting uh, full circle moment. It's, you know, you all mentioned... Um Response and and reaction as kind of a, a key a key driver and and sort of art being part of that cycle. Um, I'm interested about like the artist's role in in cultural production and cultural conversation. Uh, and Josh, you were telling us about a work that you have made around. Uh, music that was banned after 9/11, and and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about. I guess the role of, of the artist as a, a third party, I suppose, in this dynamic of pop culture and um, legislation or, or power. Yeah, it's a it's one of these works that I have. There's a few in the in the body of work that it's just it's ongoing. Like I'm literally working on it. I was working on it earlier today. Um, so what happened after September 11th? Clear Channel, which is you know an, an enormous media conglomerate here in the United States and I think worldwide. Um, they banned 217 songs from their radio stations um, after September 11th. And this includes, you know, uh, things like uh, Armstrong's It's a Wonderful Life, um, Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal, which I think is a strange choice, um, but then like the entire Rage Against the Machine catalog. Um, so what I've done over the years is I've, I've collected them. I've, I've bought them, I've downloaded them, I've found them in other places, um, I found them on old computers. Uh, and so the work has taken three forms. The first form was that I would cut 217 records um, and they would all play back uh, simultaneously. Um, then it took on this life where it was an FM broadcast. And so I took over radio waves locally, um, not a huge distance. Um, I would set up a transmitter that was just really a, a small Raspberry Pi unit with a huge antenna on it. And it would do like, I don't know, about a quarter of a mile. Sorry, I can't do the conversion. Um, and then I would take over the radio in people's cars and they would hear whatever song was playing and every hour it would choose a new FM frequency and it would start to broadcast on there. Um, right now in the studio, it's getting ready to go to a show, um, but I'm cutting all of the, the tracks together, stacked on top of each other, um, onto a record. Uh, I've restored a record lathe and so I'm using that. Um, you know, but this, all of this comes from the memorandum that was issued that's been widely disputed. Um, and of course, there are, there are photocopies of it. There are photos of it. Like it's a thing that exists and Clear Channel as a corporation is like, no, we would never do such a thing. Um, but it's clear that they have and they did. 
Um, and so it's this this push pull. It's like, okay, they say this didn't happen, but it did happen. There are multiple versions of it. Nobody knows who modified or crossed out or added or any of those things. Um, and so for me, with that piece in particular, it's become about an investigation. It's about finding out what happened. Um, and then inserting myself into that dialogue around that memorandum um, and, and trying to figure out from the inside what happened. Mm, it's interesting that I guess if copyright is one form of blocking people from using material, censorship is, is another, right? And they're kind of mm. intertwined. Um, I think what's interesting about sampling popular culture is this idea that, I mean, you know, sure, pop culture productions have a certain genre component to them, but the inherent thing that makes them pop culture is that they're popular, right? And so that is dependent on the audience and the, the consumer, and so you can't really have pop culture um, and the, the commercial viability of pop culture without the active participation of the public and, and, and the people. And I'm interested in the way that we might think about, therefore, the people having some ownership over that or having some collective right to those works. Um, is this something that comes up in the work that you do or how you think about the source material that you use? Um, I think, for me, there's always, I mean, there's always been a sense of um, thinking about, you know, when I say pop, popular culture, often it's actually been nostal you know, nostalgic. So I would remix um, footage from, from movies when I was a child and, and things like that. So um, there's that personal connection to the to the culture and you know that those cultural products framed and and shaped who I am as a person to a certain degree. So certainly I have ownership over them to a certain amount. I mean if they shape me, how can I how can I be um, uh, removed from the the opportunity to comment on how they've done that? That's I suppose there's that that level of kind of engagement with ownership. Um, I also just think that you know Bronwyn mentioned the you know the beginnings of the internet age that um, that even before that, once you get into the age of mechanical reproduction, the the, the sense of who owns a thing or the notion of authenticity in an object or a cultural product becomes much more complex, you know, especially if we're all, all having these copies of it. I mean, you know, I bought the DVD, what does it mean that I can't remix it? I mean, I own the DVD. Yeah. <coughs> object ownership, there's yeah. intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah um, I don't see myself as working so much with popular culture but I, I wanted to pick up on a few things and I was, um, I was just thinking of course about Roland Barthes and the death of the author and this idea that you know yeah. it's not a new idea it's been around for a century that you know the artwork is completed by the experience of the audience member and that's a very you know well um, understood and accepted idea in art circles but then copyright and intellectual property is still very much centred on this idea of, of the original and the individual and that um, that idea of authorship, which yeah doesn't really align with <laughs> other cultural interpretations. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I. I mean, you know, you could you could push that back to a hundred years in art and and look at people like Duchamp and the ready made. Mm, yeah. And, and you know, so the notion of the sample or the the cultural product being recontextualized has a hundred year history in art now. Yeah. And I think you know, there's you know, I, it it's interesting that we're still talking about this no, notion of ownership after it's been being challenged for a hundred years. Yeah, but it's still so prevalent, and I guess it's about those power dynamics and about the fact that there is a legislative framework that's um, still, you know, mm. that, that threat that sort of hangs over our head as an artist of this unknown of if I mm. engage with culture and sample it and reuse it, and that goes to court, am I going to be able to defend it as a... You know, as a transformative work or whatever bits of legislation you can pull on in, in your context, or or am I going to be found to be guilty of... Well, and, of, and context you know, is, is so important copying. there, because mm. we don't have the doctrine of fair, uh, of fair use yeah. isn't a right in New Zealand, so you, know, yeah. you look at people like Clem Devine who had to, had to chop the Mercedes logo out of all of his works. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 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 It's... um. Yeah, I, I kind of think it's interesting, like, that the labour of the fan and the people who give something, mm. that, that energy that turns it into popular culture or gives it its significance is is uh, just not recognised at all in, in the legal frameworks that we have around, um, around media. Um, I was also struck by, when I was doing my... Um, uh, my master's research, I was I ended up watching a whole bunch of these kind of semi-amateur documentaries made in 2005 at the peak of peer-to-peer -peer sharing and remix culture, and was just struck by the the recurring um, uh, kind of distress that 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 was coming from people saying, you know, we're surrounded, we're bombarded by by consumer culture, by media. Um, we feel like that the only thing we can do is to is to reuse that and take that and, and do something different and it's it's the the material of our of our reality so you know we don't see this as being owned by someone we see this as being part of our world um but i think this is probably a good time to move into this discussion about copyright and the the legal frameworks around this discussion so <laughs> I guess if copyright, if the premise behind copyright is to protect creativity, um, I think that so that yeah. So this is what this is what copyright. This is where copyright comes from. This idea that okay, if someone puts all this labour into creating something like a, a book or a film, which you can just reproduce pretty instantly, how do we? Uh, reward people for that labour and and encourage and make it a viable form of work. So that's where like the the start of copyright law comes from. And then it gets blown way out of whack, I would I would argue, um, and becomes something that is uh, basically it flips on its head and becomes very dominated by uh, the the screen the Hollywood screen production industry and the um, the Motion Picture Association and becomes this really big lobby, uh, international lobbying um, movement. And there's a whole bunch of conventions in the late 90s and 2000s which are trying to 
get countries all around the world to crack down on copyright. Um, maybe Josh, if you could start by talking about your experience of creating this work in in the US, which has fair use law and a little bit about what that is and what uh, protection or opportunity that gives to artists and then coming to Aotearoa New Zealand and and releasing your work here and the ambiguity of that. So yeah we're I I guess I'll say fortunate that we have this uh, language in the copyright law in the US that allows for fair use. So for research, criticism, and then there's some weird amorphous idea of transformative uh, creation, um, but the, that's the problem with it. There, it's not outlined. It's totally, you know. I think I described it previously or recently as, you know, being in a sensory deprivation tank for like a day, and then putting your hand in a wet paper bag and trying to pull out the pink rock. It's like there's just there's no guidelines. It's just something that was put into the law to make, you know to make those lobbying for creators feel a little bit easier. Like, oh, we allow you to use it on occasion, but if you do use it, we're still going to come at you. Um, and that's been the big thing. That's been the big discussion around 2001 um, is the Kubrick's, uh, Kubrick's oof, it's late here. Kubrick's ex- estate is very litigious um, and they have gone after many people for using uh, various pieces of his. Um, they recently went after director Steven Soderbergh because he just recut 2001. He took 45 minutes out of it um, and they went after him. And so, you know, yeah, I spent 10 years with it. And every time I looked at it, it was like, oh, is this going to be a waste? Because I'm never going to be able to show it. Um, I haven't heard from them. We had a plan in case they did show up because uh, City Gallery is the first place that is showing this work. It's never been seen anywhere else. Um, and the discussion that Aaron and Chelsea and I were having was whose copyright laws do we try and abide by? Um, mine as the creator in the US or yours as the, the institution that's showing it and where it's being shown. Um, and eventually we just kind of came to, a, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, that was sort of the answer that we came up with. Um, but it's yeah, it, it makes it difficult to make work and to show work because you don't know what you're going to run into. Because while it might be legal what I've done in the U.S., and I think it is, and I think we could argue it in court, um, it might not be legal where you're at. And that becomes problematic, um, uh, not only for myself, but I think many other creators that are in the same situation. Bronwyn, you obviously very passionate about the state of copyright law in, in Aotearoa. Um, uh, <laughs> our copyright law was is has had a few amendments, but basically it's from 1994, which is you know pre digital. It's very, very outdated. What would you like to see reflected in the new copyright law? What do you what do you need to prep these people for to sign your petition? <laughs> I should probably start by saying I'm not a lawyer. And also, um, yeah, although the lobbying, I've I've sort of stepped back away back from that a little bit in recent years because I'm doing this whole building a national register of public art thing. Uh, (laughs) It's taking a bit of time. But, um, yeah, but I did, actually, that said, I did put in a submission to the last round of um, the copyright review and... um, yeah, there was sort of, I think, one concept that springs to mind. Um, and I actually wore this T-shirt today, which says, don't be a dick, because 
In my experience with sampling and reading lots of cases of people borrowing material, um, in most cases, if you handle a sampled piece of material with respect to where it's come from, thinking about the, you know, the sort of the whakapapa of that and thinking about the idea of, of guardianship of a, a piece of cultural material, um, then most of the time people are okay with it. I think that's not always the case and, um, yeah, thinking about the Kubrick estate who are particularly litigious, um, there is this point where you think, well, maybe we need more protections actually for creative practice in New Zealand where um, there are strong arguments for protecting creative processes like sampling and remixing and et cetera, parody and satire, which are not protected here, although similar jurisdictions, the US, Canada, have put those in place in recent years, so there's a precedent. Hello, hello, I'm back. Um, so, yeah, so I think our law doesn't really go far enough in terms of giving creatives a bit more reassurance that copyright isn't going to be used as a form of censorship or as a form of intimidation by people who hold rights um, or corporations who hold rights because that's sort of where, where it's heading in terms of music and film anyway. Um, so, yeah, so I think having more certainty around parody and satire, fair dealing, and, um, yeah, certainly putting those in place in New Zealand law would be really, really helpful. Mm. I, th I think there's some interesting things there in that where, I mean, in New Zealand, we're not only operating in a New Zealand context. If I... Sorry, That's all good. If I think about... Um, like a few years back, I made a whole series of uh, works which were streamed live to YouTube, um, and then I would make excerpts from them, and um, I spent a lot of time disputing copyright claims on works which were clearly, like, which weren't using sampled material at all, were produced live in real time. And there were just companies who were making their living by putting up copyright claims on everything they could on YouTube. And unless you, you distributed, of course, they got all the advertising revenue, not that I was getting advertising revenue anyway, but so their whole mode of operation was to, to put out as many things as they could. Um, so even within that context of, you know, it's interesting, whose law do you do you apply by, it's like you, you're actually probably operating in multiple jurisdictions at the same time. Um, it's interesting, I was thinking about some of the things you were saying and you were talking about copyright really becoming this thing in Hollywood, but I think um, if we think back even earlier than that, and I think Nosferatu is, a, is the perfect example of that, there is only one remaining original print of Nosferatu and it's because Bram Stoker's family won a court case which had all the other copies of it destroyed because they claimed that it was theft of intellectual property, basically. Um, and Nosferatu shapes the entire genre of vampire movie 
and video game moving forward from from that point in time. So I think there's real risk in in terms of of shutting down that um, that notion of of people's ability to to um, riff on other ideas. And interestingly, because I'd done quite a lot of work around Nosferatu, I actually had that movie chopped into individual scenes on my computer at home for VJing with. So, um, <coughs> um, and I had to, um, to ensure that I wasn't breaching copyright, I had to make sure that I deleted the soundtrack and deleted all the new intertitles that had been put into it because then I've only got copies of the original footage which is out of copyright. Um, is that in terms of getting it on YouTube and not having takedowns or just in terms of uh, that, that's the just in word terms of the law? That's just in terms yeah. of, um, you know, 20 years ago, sitting in a similar panel with actually Frank Stark who used to run the film archive who... In a, in, at the Adam Gallery said, oh, Eugene's work's completely illegal. He, he's, you know, legally if someone was to, to say something, it, you know, he'd be toast. Mm. And I wanted to re-put on one of the works that I'd made at that time a couple of years ago, and I actually had to find new footage. I had to find new footage because the technology had moved so much, but it was like I had to insist that people used movies that were in... Um, in the public domain rather than yeah. just anywhere from popular culture. Yes, and it's interesting thinking about, you know, that assertion that something's illegal mm. and thinking about jurisdiction and thinking about US mm. and fair use versus fair dealing. Mm. And, um, I mean, I think that um, the works upstairs would be covered under New Zealand law because they're physically being presented here. But we don't have a huge amount of case law to sort of guide how fair, fair dealing is interpreted here. We can point to, you know, examples in our Commonwealth, kind of in the UK and in, in Canada, but, um, yeah, it's sort of one word over another until it goes to court and is battled out. Yeah. Um, and in fair dealing we have... Uh, exceptions for research for news reporting and I was thinking about that example you had Josh of of capturing all of these tracks that have been censored from a radio station and how that could be seen as a form of you know investigative journalism or investigative art if you will um, of a, as a way of recording this factual event that's happened and preserving that for future generations and I think the Bram Stoker version is another uh, another story where you know it's about that ongoing record for the public and if you know how I think probably fair dealing needs a bit more clarity around it here but but I think some of what we're doing as artists is actually operating in that sort of journalistic model where we're engaging with culture and recording mm -hmm. what's happened as a, as a form of truth and a form of you know, knowledge for future generations. So, um. I'm I'm also not a lawyer, but I, my understanding is that disclaimer: none of us are lawyers. <laughs> none of us are lawyers. Don't take what we're saying Doesn't as mean legal you advice. Can't read the law and yep. understand it. But but my understanding is that um, is that where a work is first published is whose copyright law it would sit under. So, with an artwork, the the country in which you first show the work is the country in which the copyright 
has either been breached or not breached? I think it's about where it's being viewed, where it's published, or where it's, yeah. So, so being physically displayed within City Gallery Wellington places it under New Zealand's jurisdiction. It, it's, it's pretty blurry, but what it does do is it draws your attention to one, like, that temporality, you know, the idea that suddenly works become in the public domain when they weren't mm. before, and, you know, Josh has pointed out that Mickey Mouse is, you know, possibly about to come into the public domain in 2023, but probably not. <laughs> probably looks like there'd be another round of restriction placed on it. But also in terms of that, you know, it's, you've got both national law operating, but it's not, doesn't really seem to be isolated to, to, to nation states. It's also very transnational and, and the, that ambiguity about where works are first created versus where their copyright is filed versus where they get uh, the artist who lives on, who's working on them lives versus where it gets distributed. Um, and it's that kind of, it, it seems, it's, it's that point of exhibition which is where it seems to get most uh, pointy. I, I think. Can, can I jump in real quick? Yep. I just uh, I, and Eugene, you touched on this, and and I think it's a really interesting situation. Um, you talked about the inner titles in Nosferatu. Yeah. Nosferatu is in the public domain, but all of a sudden, a corporation can take what's in the public domain, change out the inner titles to make them, you know, fancier with a new typeface or add color to them, and then all of a sudden, it's copywritten again for that. Right? But, and so but then, only like, the intertitles, because they can't they can't um, assert a copyright on something that's in the public domain. Right, but they've done it here, mm. right? So like the version that I use for the work upstairs is the Kino Lorber restoration, yep. and it's easily identified because they put a shot in upside down and they restored it. Um, so you know it's really easy to tell, but they assert copyright over the entire film when they go after somebody for using it, right? And, and we see that with other, um, Corbis, the, the photo company, the photo house, they do it as well. Works that are in the public domain, they, they grab them, they wanna sell them to you and they claim copyright because they've cropped and color corrected and, and, done, and cleaned them up. And then all of a sudden they attempt to assert copyright um, over anybody that wants to use that image, whether it's their version or not. And so they're doing that thing where it's like, we're just going to send out a hundred mm. um, copyright violation notices because if 10 people pay us, then, you know, it was worth our time. So they're using it to uh, do exactly what we're talking about, which is censor people um, and what they're making, when, especially when it comes to things that are in the public domain. So copyright is the most... Uh, legally powerful form of controlling and, and setting um, guidelines around reuse. But I want to pick up on what Bronwyn raised earlier around, you know, there are other ways to think about the ethics of, of reuse and appropriate um, use. And something that I was struck by by your works, Josh, um, is, so to backtrack, um, I have recently been making some video essay works and I have no kind of ethical qualms about re reusing the, the director's work, but there's something about reusing the actor's image that that gets me, and that's where I kind of feel most uncomfortable. And so I was really interested watching your works, Josh, that don't have the people in them, that take out the actor. Um, and, yeah, kind of if that, if there is, 
if you think that there is a dif different ethical principle around using images of people versus using images or, or um, media that doesn't have kind of the individual represented in it. Um, and then kind of building on that, Josh, I'm just wondering about some of your other works that, uh, that also are really interested in, in kind of more political more political imagery and the role of the the individual in those. Um, yeah, it, the the role of the the actor or the person is a really difficult one for me. Um, there are a couple of works that have a few people in them. Those are they're mostly uh, earlier political works. There are a couple people that remain, and it yeah, it was really it's different. I, it's hard to explain, but it was it was more difficult to make the work. Um, their emotions come through in that work. Um, I feel really protective of those individuals, even though I don't know who I'm, th I'm thinking through the works. I don't know who they are. I don't know that they've ever been identified. Like one of them in particular was uh, the, the individual we refer to as Tank Man uh, in Tiananmen Square. Nobody knows who this person is or was or what happened to them, um, but I'm very protective of that individual. Um, you know, when it comes to the, the political things, especially stuff that is news footage, you know, I, I feel a larger sense of communal ownership. It's, it's a news from the world that we live in. Just somebody else happened to have a camera and capture it like it's our world. So how can we not, um, at least in part, own that imagery? Um, when it comes to the larger films like 2001 or Nosferatu, um, I... I feel like I'm in conversation not with the, the director or the, the actors. I'm in conversation um, with the cinematographer more than anybody. Um, that's whose work I'm looking at and I'm working with and I'm removing um, sort of in a way imperfections from their cinematography. Um, so I don't, in a weird way, I don't even think about uh, the figures that I remove from, from films. I love that, moving imperfections from cinematography. That's so good. Um, thinking in an Aotearoa context, uh, the Y262 claim to the, the Waitangi Tribunal um, uh, identifies that there is a whole other um, uh, ethical framework around, around ownership and reuse of intellectual property uh, that is defended by uh, Article 2 of Te Tiriti, um, and the report that comes out of that, that the Waitangi Tribunal produced out of that Ko Aotearoa makes some really interesting, um, gives really interesting guidelines around what, what ethical uh, reuse or, or consensual appropriate use looks like. Um, how, how have you thought about this in relation to, to your work or, the, or what you would like to see in our legal framework around, around reuse? big question. <laughs> yeah, thorny question. Yeah, uh, yeah so why 262? I mean, it, it sort of touches on all sorts of different forms of, you know, this idea of intellectual property, and I just wanted to flag that copyright is very much a Western um, hegemony that is kind of quite 
patriarchal and capitalist as a framework that we have inherited. And of course, there are other worldviews and other cultural ways of thinking about cultural production and what the value of these things are and what happens when you make a copy, etc. Um, I've just kind of gone back and been in preparation for today was reading um, Marcus Bone's terrific book called In Praise of Copying. And um, I really recommend it. It's um, Creative Commons license. You can download it online. Uh, but he, he sort of looks in very sort of wide terms at this idea of copying. And the word copying, the etymology of that word is from Latin, from the word copia, which means an abundance or a, um, you know, a plethora, sort of like a cornucopia, like this, this kind of great resource. Um, and then he, he sort of thinks about copying in terms of, he's a practicing Buddhist and he thinks about some of the teachings from um, Buddhist philosophy around the idea of the copy and the idea of an object having an essence or, you know, something that sort of makes it special and makes it valuable that you can connect with as, as a human. And um, for me, in terms of Y262, I think about that Māori concept of wairua and um, I was actually, I worked on a project um, called Ghosts in the Form of Gifts, which was a commission for, for Massey to mark their sort of 10th anniversary of having a School of Fine Arts. And it was looking at that, that history of the site of the old museum building and then Te Papa or, you know, the National Museum having occupied that and thinking about that process of, of moving and the things that sort of fall by the wayside and perhaps get lost or perhaps weren't included to begin with and this sort of the idea of a collection and a selective kind of set of, of signifiers of our past. And so I came up with a set of objects that were imagined as missing from the Te Papa's collection and then created those as three-dimensional objects, um, digital objects and 3D printed objects and then made those files available for free download under Creative Commons. So it's sort of this, this idea of a gift exchange. But one of the things that came up in conversation and development of that project, um, I think I was looking at, yeah, looking at a, um, creating a, a patu as part of that, thinking about that form and thinking about how different um, tools and implements, and in this case it's a weapon, um, have, have been adapted and transferred few, through cultures over time. Um, but was sort of really warned off that because a patu is, you know, seen to have a spirit of its own and it's a highly um, uh, uh, tapu object. Um, so I sort of stepped away from that. But it really made me think, you know, this is such a, an incredible concept in, a, in an art context, knowing that, that these um, objects, art objects, cultural objects, can have this real presence and this real meaning and even if it's a copy, it can still have some sort of sort of essence. So, um, so I think we stand a lot to gain from thinking about other worldviews, other ways of of looking at cultural objects, and and you know even the idea of kaitiakitanga and and particular um, objects being associated with a people group. I think you need to sort of approach it with this very um, very strong sense of respect and and try and find out more about the history and that's actually kind of a quite a rich rich history to look into but um but that said I do part of me worries that um 
what is effectively a sort of an all rights reserved into perpetuity approach that's indicated in Y262. Um, we are... Where you know an object in copyright law, um, it would fall into the public domain after you know the end of the year the author dies plus fifty years or whatever. Um, but with Maori culture, these things date back hundreds of years, and in some cases, iwi, um, there are more more te atea and and things where it's like no, that still is part of our cultural tradition, and we you know have rights and in, in this work. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of see that and I acknowledge that. And but then I think, could that potentially be used as a form of censorship if there was a, a really strong reason for engaging with those pieces of cultural material to talk about what's happening in the present day? And yeah, it could just fall into the same traps, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hugely conflicted with this question. Than you know, fuck a papa and to to money a poto, um, and I think there's some some really kind of fundamental questions to ask before we even address it, and that's around things like, well, what is you know, what is art, what is culture, who says these things? I mean, from a from a Maori perspective, you're quite possibly talking about um, living ancestors. Um, and the idea that someone might come along and make a copy of one of your ancestors is just absolutely kind of strange and abhorrent. Um, so I think there's, there's that. And I think, I think you know, we, you're really talking about what does it mean to, uh, to try and resolve um, the differences, these cultural differences of understanding in a kind of 21st century context. Um, you know, because, um, you know, I hear you talking about patu and I'm really glad that you backed <laughs> off on that. At the same time, I was um, horrified that my um, my son's um, uh, woodwork teacher, an intermediate, got all of the kids in the class to make a patu and to essentially treat it like it was a 21st birthday key and tattoo something, uh, engrave something from their family history on it. And I was sitting there going, this, you don't just make a weapon to kill people as this thing that kids make. That's not, that's not how you treat this object. So I think there's, yeah, there's all sorts of kind of ways of thinking about, about it. Um, and, you know, without a doubt, lots of Māori, Māori culture has been appropriated and used in some really terrible ways. But I don't know how you, you know, I think you've got to think about how you move forward with these arguments as well. I mean, uh, Lisa Reihana has the most extensive collection of 70s Māori ana I've ever seen anywhere in my life. Um, and I grew up wearing plastic tiki, so those things are equally a part of my cultural heritage as well. Mm. Mm. It, it strikes me that, you know, copyright seems just like a very, um, a, a very surface level transactional tool that mm. we have for trying to pinpoint very specific instances 
um, in time that uh, you know threaten the commercial growth of of these you know uh, conglomerates, um, but don't really ask you to think about the work and and what the work is is saying and the messages in the work and the relationship between yourself and the work. Um, whereas the the philosophy that's at the heart of the Y two six two claim is about kaitiakitanga and and what does it mean to um, to sustain and care for and have safe engagement with with cultural expression um, mm. and you know I think uh, Brom when you're talking about that engaging with that philosophy helps you to understand the significance of an object and the importance of it more deeply rather than um, you know rather than uh, copyright which which seems to be very uh, fear-mongering and, and scary yeah just for Josh's benefit kaitiakitanga means guardianship and would generally tend to be expressed from um, everything from a kind of spiritual to a physical guardianship of, a, of an object or an idea mm. even mm. yeah <laughs> um sorry I'm just going to ask um, a more, I'll just ask one more question and then we'll throw it to the audience so have a little have a little think of what you might want to ask but you know does this come up when you're teaching and, and thinking about, you know, how do you, uh, yes. as someone who's sort of responsible for helping students uh, mm. be safe, um, but mm. also encourage creative practice, how, how do you navigate that? Well, and, and I think this is, this is where I'd kind of like to think about um, these things not having a broad brush way that deals with everything, but... But you know, as someone who works with appropriation, I spend a lot of time thinking about what does it mean for me to appropriate that thing in one, the context it came from and in the context I'm in here and now. And I think so trying to get students to think deeply about, as you said, what their relationship to the content they're appropriating is and what does that mean to, to engage in that practice is, is where it's at, but also kind of, you know, um, letting them know that, that they open themselves up to risk if they, if they breach copyright, they can be pursued for that in this context. Thank you. Okay, anyone have a partai for us? It's really interesting. So this is kind of coming back to what you were saying before about, you know, if you buy the object, then you have, you know, don't you have the right to reuse that object? If you haven't bought oh, that, no, the don't. object or the file in the first place, where does that put you? I, you know, I, I mean, I was, you know, I was an early adopter of digital technology. Um, I think I was the first person I knew, other than one other person who owned a DVD a, a, a CD burner, a DVD burner. And it was this really interesting thing where um, I'd buy vinyl records and, um, yeah, I had a CD burner, but there was this, this interesting thing that came out which said, um, actually, people who have CD burners tend to buy more records than anybody else. So, it, so there's this really interesting kind of relationship around content. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I purely have 100% legal software on my computer these days. Um, I didn't when I was in my 20s, you know? There's, there's a difference, I suppose. Um, um, most of what I want to deal with, I can find a, a, a if not legal, a, a um, situation where somebody else has breached the copyright and put it up available freely for everyone rather than me, so I'm, you know. Um, but I don't know, it's a really tricky question. What about, what about you, Josh? How do you come across the, the raw material that you use? It depends on, one, what I have in my own collection, but also what is available? You know, is there a better version out there? And so, yeah, I, you know, I've gone down a path that sometimes I'm not super excited with or proud of, but, you know, I think when you're trying to make a work and what you need to make the work doesn't exist in a way that is accessible. Um, I think you go to great lengths to find what you need to use. Um, yeah. It, it, and then, you know, when we're buying things, because I think we all purchase a lot of media, now the new copy protection that they put onto the discs mm -hmm. or into the files is, you know, it's not that you can't overcome it. It's just a pain. Um, and it just, it, it takes more time. Um, I, I, I sorry. I, no, I was, go ahead. I was going to say, I suppose the, for me, the complete outdatedness of the notion of copyright is that if I can get it on my computer screen, I can have it. It's just that simple. Yeah, that if, that if anyone irony. can get it on their computer screen, they can have it. Like the internet is a giant copying machine. It's yeah. built to do that. Right. So right. I mean, is it any, you know, I, I think about yeah. the internet, I think about pirating things. Is it any different though than, you know, making VHS copies for everybody right. in your neighborhood at that point? Um, are these better copies? Absolutely. Do I kind of miss the like stretch out VHS from dupe after dupe after dupe? Absolutely, because that was an amazing thing. Um, but you know, it's it's like we all live in one big neighborhood now, and we're all sharing the same Blu-ray at this point. Um, yeah, although I, I've, I've just been thinking about this, and when we were, you know, doing the Section 92A thing, there was, it was before we had streaming platforms, and so New Zealand was still operating within this model where we only got things through the cinemas after everybody else overseas because we're fairly low down the down the uh, chain or on after DVD. It had been through and, and Australian <laughs> censorship. Yeah, yeah. And or on DVD, in which case there's kind of the region coding, which I think, you know, most people could get around pretty easily well by that stage. But um kind of this like this artificial notion of of dividing the world into different, you know, DVD zones or film zones. And and um, one of our arguments was, you know, if we're not being, you know, if we don't have access to this material that we're wanting to engage with, that everybody's talking about online, that's sort of the fault of the distribution networks and should it be legal to, you know, peer-to-peer -peer download something if it's not actually available anywhere else? Um, and so that was sort of an idea that we were talking about at the time and, um yeah, things have changed a lot now because of the shift to streaming, but it does sort of add a barrier in terms of 
I guess, accessing content for reuse, potentially, not that I know. Yeah, because sort of yeah. screen capturing BJ. streamed material mm. is, mm. you know, the, your quality is different than if it's a, a download in itself. And it will, I am interested to see, like, over time, if, if there's a shift in in the quality of, of material that people are, are using from the kind of online sharing era to the streaming era. I can, t- I can tell you already that there, there is, if I look at the work of my students and, you know, like, so we've probably been through a 10 year period where we've been obsessing more and more about high quality mm. and because they're coming completely from an internet base, they don't care and in fact, they the the more like the web, the screen the better in some ways. So, yep, there's going to be a big change in terms of of our understanding of those things. Mm. Sort of that return to retro tech that's yeah you know, growing. Yeah, or yeah. or an acceptance of current tech as acceptable content. Mm. Mm. They, they don't care about whether or not you can blow it up on a projector. If they want to do that, they'll shoot it on 4K with a yeah. camera themselves. Yeah. But you know, it has to mostly, be good enough for a smartphone. Yeah. yeah. Josh, you were talking about a really interesting case that's happening around Warhol works in the US in the moment. Um, yeah, the Warhol case right now is there's a photographer. She was on assignment for I forget which magazine it was. She made some photographs of Prince, the musician. And Warhol used one of those photographs and made a bunch of paintings, as Warhol does. Um, She just recently found out, like five or six years ago, that Warhol had used her image. It's an interesting problem because I would think if she was on assignment, it's work for hire. She doesn't own the copyright. The magazine does. But I haven't read the brief entirely, so I don't know uh, for certain. But it doesn't matter because if she wins, and the court is in front of the Supreme Court, in the United States right now, um, which is a whole other like two hour panel. Um, but if they side with her, if they find in her favor, it retroactively makes about 90% of Warhol's body of work illegal. And nobody knows what's going to happen to it. Will it need to be destroyed? Will it never be able to be shown again? Um, what happens? And so I keep thinking, and I've been talking about it, like I keep thinking about a world without Warhol. That's just not a place that I think any of us uh, really want to be um, because it was it had that work, the way that he worked had such an impact on everything that we look at and do even today that it could never happen again. Right. The that type of work being illegal would just have this insane chilling effect on so much creative output and so much of the future um, that I find it quite frightening. Uh, the prospects of this ruling that'll probably come down next June or so. Uh, I think Warhol will be fine. <laughs> which well, is not around anymore to begin with. But I think the value of his work will be fine, which is probably the most concern for people who actually happen to own some of it. Um, I just wanted to jump in on the. <laughs> just going to push that out. Uh, jump in on this idea of um, thinking about that idea of. Of, of respect and of, of acknowledging the effort that goes into making an original work and coming back to the sort of don't be a dick sort of approach. I think, 
you know, there is, it is so easy to take things, but, um, and in the case of Warhol, I, I can imagine that there's, there's, a, there's a bit of hurt, there's a bit of my idea from the original creator who just wants, you know, perhaps to be acknowledged, but perhaps also to be, you know, get a little bit of that, that income um, that Warhol would have seen. Um, and thinking of appropriation, uh, I, I think we haven't really touched on, we talked about Y262, but... But how um, copyright is so much about power and control and economic power and control and so tied, well, the idea of appropriation, particularly in New Zealand context, is tied in with that program of colonisation. And I think that in historical terms, we are... um, works have been appropriated in, from, from Māori culture in particular by Pākehā or others. Um, there, there's that, that power dynamic, that sort of taking and not respecting where it's coming from. And um, I think there's a real lacuna in copyright law in terms of respecting the sort of the, the emotional well-being of where something's come from. It's... Um, more framed in, in, yeah, economic terms, perhaps, but, yeah. Mm. Maybe, so what I'm hearing is that when the, you know, we finally get to revise our copyright law, it's basically going to be, one clause, don't be a dick. Is that <laughs> is that the kind of end of it? Um, we are past time, so we're going to wrap up there. Thank you for those questions, and I'm sorry we didn't get to the rest of them. Thank you so much. Josh, for calling in from Kentucky, for waking up from your yeah, nap. Thank you all for having me. <laughs> um, and yeah, once again, a reminder to go check out Josh's works, Triple Feature, upstairs. Um, thank you very much, Eugene and Bronwyn. Um, I kind of forgot that we were having a panel, I got a bit sucked into the conversation, so sorry about the timing. Um, thank you all for coming. Uh, kia ora. Have a, have a think about this stuff. It's, you know, it. It's, it's, it's everywhere, it's every day, um, and it is, uh, you know, I think that when the legislation does come around, it's going to be really important that uh, we're raising those questions around, yeah, who profits, who benefits, uh, what is ownership, and, and what does this mean in an Aotearoa context, um, and how can we not be bullied by big companies overseas. <laughs> but, okay. but don't let it distract you from thinking about the content of the work. Yes, yep. Bringing it back to the work. Okay, I think that's us. Kia ora, thank you. Yeah.